I'm black. You're white. Now what? So what if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. Good morning. I'm David Connolly. I'm a communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And weirdly, strangely, this is a uh, sort of different version of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? We're actually uh, in person. In person. Together. <laughs> Wonder Twin Powers. And so uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, black in the car. He's white. Driving. And I'm white in the car. We're in the same car. And he's driving. And I'm driving. You, you never know what will happen. Not driving, driving. Over. Not driving, driving. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are um, together, I guess, this time because we are on our New England tour of um, I'm Black, You're White, our training classes that we're doing for uh, young people at uh, summer camps. And so that's some exciting work to be inspiring, you know, like the new generation, which I think is really going to be uh, the way that going forward, you know, we sort of deal with and address a lot of these racial divides is by, you know, impacting and educating uh, young people. And as they get older and have that change in them, hopefully, there'll be more of a change that you can see in you know, in society. Yeah, and it's been it's been impressive to with the camps we've worked with so far, see and hear the insight and the sophistication mm-hmm. of the staff. I mean, I yesterday we were working with some staff as young as sixteen, and it was really inspiring in the sense of my imagining what I was like when I was sixteen right. and how ignorant I was of social justice issues and and that's that's actually that's a compliment to these kids families and their schools and their peers that they are as aware as they are and i think we're doing the best we can to help them translate their understanding of diversity equity inclusion social justice to summer camps you know which have been around for 150 years so right right and i think that it's uh, that we're helping them to apply it. Like, yeah. I think a lot of them understand it. You know, they seem to understand it very well, you know, and have a, a good academic knowledge of it. But then, you know, what happens when you're in situations where you need to apply it to, you know, a one-on-one situation or in their cases, uh, when you have to deal with young people in your charge, yeah. you know, for, for camp. That's when it really, when the rubber meets the road, if you will, uh, for what your uh, paradigm of diversity, inclusion, and equity, and inclusion, I always mix them up, um, is. is. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's they're a lot more sophisticated because a lot of it is is uh, more in your face than, you know, when, when we were young. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I was... I, I can say that the summer camp I remember going to when I was young was Camp Tambo, and that was an acronym for that all maybe one. And it was actually, as I recall, uh, 
pretty diverse. That was in St. Louis? That was in Missouri. Uh, okay. the, the day camp was a place called the Dignity House, and the Dignity House was part of a, a group that Camp Tambo then drew from to I see. get uh, campus. So the Dignity House was taking uh, young people from my inner city neighborhood and, you know, and teaching us all sorts of things about uh, theater and uh, writing and dance and singing. It was a, it was a brilliant place uh, for creative minds and gave young people something to do and you know options. Uh, and was Tambo mostly black kids, black and white? Tambo was uh, mostly was black and white. Okay. Um, I thought that it would be because my experience with the Dignity House was uh, primarily black, except for the uh, the leaders, the counselors or what have you. Yeah. Uh, I expected the same when I got to camp, but it was actually, you know, like a mix of, of black and white because there were other day camps that were being brought to Camp Temple as well. Oh, I see, so I see. Yeah. The, the, that all maybe one thing was about bringing people together even before it became a popular hashtag, you know, yeah. so it was, it was about exchanging experiences between black yeah. uh, kids and white kids and so it was like late 70s it, it was it was like late 70s 80s okay. you know um, um but yeah so it was it inspired me as far as like writing as far as you know theater and all of that but but this as far as the summer camp element it was a really good and a cool place to be and meet yeah. some people who were different than yourself which surprisingly when I think back on it there was that experience then and, and I'm understanding that you don't see as much of that now and so it's that seems a little yeah. inverted to me but well, what yeah. was your experience like? I mean I, so that's cool because I think that um, you know that it was partly why I was asking you when that was because I just imagining uh, you know on the heels of the civil rights movement my, so I was born in 1968. I have some memories of the 70s, and uh, both of my parents were liberally minded. And at the same time, we lived here in Maine, where, especially at that time, it was very homogeneous mm -hmm. and, and you know primarily white. And I didn't have any black friends. We we would host during the summer. Uh, starting when I was four, uh, a young person through the Fresh Air Fund. And so that was a way of allowing a young person to live with a host family, a young person from a city to live with a host family in the country. And we lived at that time in York, Maine, more countryside, not suburbia. And, uh, and Eddie, who I remember most fondly, was black. Um, and that I think typically the Fresh Air Fund was sponsoring black kids to be with families in the country, and most of those families were white. So it, it's a little bit the memory I have of the 70s that there was intentional racial integration. But my camp experience as a day camper at two different day camps in Maine and then at an overnight camp here in New Hampshire 
was I, I sit here in Maine and here in New Hampshire because we just crossed the border, so mm-hmm. we're we're in both states. Um, was was really you know almost all white kids, occasional black kid, occasional Asian kid, occasional Middle Eastern kid, but um, and and again my memory is we all got along fine, but. When, when when there are 290 boys and only one of them is black, that's not an experience of difference and diversity for, right. I don't know, for anyone. It is, I suppose it is for the black kid. I don't know. But for the white kids, um, you know, it's more of a novelty than anyone, anything else. And, you know, I mean, and I say that with, with you know, all kindness in my heart, but to be honest, there were not there were not a lot of camps besides, you know, Tambo and the other ones that you're talking about that intentionally brought in uh, white kids, black kids, uh, Latinx kids, Asian kids to w- with the express purpose, uh, or at least part of their mission was to um, open kids' eyes up, you know, and. Now, you know, some of the camps that we visited in New England this summer are really making moves in that direction. And it's not something you can do overnight, but they've got a sustained commitment from their board of directors, uh, from other funding sources, so that, for example, it becomes integrated into the mission. There are uh, scholarships available for you know, families who don't have the means, and that could be families of any different ethnicity, but they are able to pull together a socioeconomically diverse, religiously diverse, racially diverse group. And yeah, it's just, it's just so cool. But it's, it's, I'll say this one other thing, and then I want to hear your thoughts on it. More than just okay, we're looking out at the field where all the 12-year-olds are playing capture the flag and it's really nice to see a mix of kids of different ethnicities as we, you know, visually anyway, it looks like a very diverse group. Um, I think what I'm finding most gratifying about the work that we're doing together is we're getting staff to think about, so what are the ways in which you are making all campers feel comfortable? Right. And I'll give you a specific example. So at, at Belknap, where I had, had the bulk of my camping career, we were thrilled several years ago through alum connections to have the funding and also um, the the encouragement from our board to intentionally diversify the camper ship and ultimately the leadership three kids from the Caribbean mm-hmm. and that was fantastic and we were very intentional about recognizing that the food that we're serving is different from what they're used to. Uh, for example, we have in our main lodge flags from 
different schools and different countries that over the last 120 years have been represented in the leadership. And somebody said, you know, we don't have we don't have a flag from St. John's. We don't have a, a you know a flag from the Virgin Islands, and so we got one. And that's just like that's it's those small touches that I think in some help to make a person, whatever their background, feel truly included, right. not right. just tokenistic. Right, truly really represented. Um, let me, I mean, I'm curious about this because I'm, I'm kind of hearing what you're saying and I'm just uh, thinking about some of the, you know, camps we've gone to and, and what they're talking about with regard to some of the pushes for, uh, you know, more pointed or uh, more, um, what's the word, uh, specifically uh, targeted diversity and inclusion um, but I, I, I'm wondering like about the impetus to do it and this may sound like I guess I'm trying to you know look a gift horse in the mouth to whatever degree um, but I'll, I'll ask I'll frame the question in this way to me there is a difference between saying you know what, this camp has been pretty homogeneous for the last 100 years or so, and I think uh, as a camp, we're doing our campers a disservice and we're missing out by not uh, exposing them to and sharing experiences with other cultures, so we need to do that and share this camp with other kids and whatever. And the, there's a difference between that and the mindset that says, we are going to go and help these underprivileged kids much in a way that a missionary would do it. I see, yeah. And when you do the, the latter, a lot of times you tend to have a sort of uh, unintentional, well-meaning, but still condescending uh, viewpoint of the people you're bringing in. Like, like you're doing them a favor more than you're actually equally exchanging ideas and in that way you sort of set up a thing where the status assignments of the young people who are now exposed to the camp for maybe the first time or what have you uh, would still feel coming in the door like their status is somehow lower if that makes sense right yeah so I'm wondering how much because you're, you're a lot more involved in uh, camps for a longer time than me. How much of that are you seeing, or are you seeing it uh, more of where it's, we're going to bring everybody in, in, regardless of where they come from, their socioeconomic status, whatever, everybody's uh, status in general is going to be on a baseline, high level, uh, I, I just wonder about that because to me, some of the conversation I hear, and I think the people mean well when they do it, but it is in a way that sounds more like these, you know, oh my goodness, we're going to have these poor. <laughs> right, you know, right, right. As opposed to, yeah, I'm going to really have a, an actual even exchange, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, I would say it's much more the former than the latter. 
and I'll, I'll explain why. And I, I agree with you. If, if, if any organization, whether it's a camp or a school or a corporation, is trying to intentionally diversify, they can't do it to check a box. They have to do it because it's sincere and figure out why it's part of their mission and not do it until they genuinely feel that it is part of their mission. And I use the word mission there, not in, in a religious way, but in a, you know, what is your vision purpose. for this? Yeah, your purpose. And, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of as a Belknapper, someone who went and still works behind the scenes at Camp Belknap, is for as long as I can remember being on the leadership, which started, I guess, in 1984, the camp has offered, it's a, I should mention, it's a YMCA camp. So okay. um, it's an agency camp, nonprofit, 501c3, and for a very long time, part of the YMCA's mission is has been community-based, okay. right? So we start out in 1903 as a community-based uh, organization doing not just the summer camp, but also some community outreach. And so, you know, dialing back to 1903, I'm sure that that community outreach was primarily touching people in financially supportive ways. Um, when I joined the camp or was asked to be part of the leadership, the community service that we were doing in the shoulder seasons, late spring, early fall, was a lot for the public school systems in central New Hampshire, uh, most of which are not particularly well-funded and serve a demographic that runs the socioeconomic spectrum from very poor to uh, upper middle class. Mm -hmm. And the camp ran a teen center mm -hmm. and did outreach to elderly folks. Mm -hmm. And so our latest uh, initiative to have more ethnic diversity at, at Belknap was very sincerely rooted in a century of wanting socioeconomic diversity. And we've always had campers who are from wealthy backgrounds, from middle class backgrounds, from lower class backgrounds, and abject poverty, which you can find in every state and certainly in New Hampshire. So kids would go from living in their cars to living at camp oh, and wow. three squares a day and great sports. And I remember Belknap's previous directors, Gene and Karen Clark, saying, of course, we have kids on scholarships in every one of our five age divisions. We're not doing our jobs if there's any way to tell the difference right. between who's on a scholarship and who isn't. So we've been in contact with 
every family, including these families who are on scholarship, made sure they have what they need. But if you discover that there's a kid who's got, whose only pair of footwear is a ratty pair of sneakers that has got holes in them and isn't supporting your feet, you know, we can't ethically have that kid on a basketball court with us you know, learning games or running around on a field, not just because of the risk of injury, but you right, know, which is, the visual yeah. and it's not, that's not, you know, that's not inclusive. Uh, it's not equitable either. And so let us know right away. And of course we would get kids, uh, the clothing and equipment that they needed. And it's, it's never exactly equal, right? Cause you've got, uh, some kid from a very wealthy family who comes to camp with, you know, and we have lacrosse as a, as a game. So we've got lacrosse sticks, we've got, you know, goalie sticks, we've got, you know, defensive sticks, we've got a beautiful field. So you don't need to bring anything, but some kids would bring their own sticks. And, you know, when you have a, you know, $400 lacrosse stick with a graphite shaft, we can't get that for everybody. Right. We're not going to stop you from bringing your lacrosse stick with a graphite shaft. Um, so, sure, there are some there are some differences that are visible, but not in the I, you know, not in what I would identify as the core way. So that's a long answer to your question to describe some of the history, both broadly speaking, from an agency standpoint, the YMCA and the spirit in which camp was operating. But one of the reasons that we're taking the initiative in the last six or eight years to have more ethnic diversity is we were primarily word of mouth camp. We didn't do any print advertising. Our directors didn't go around and do slideshows. So it it self-perpetuates. And some of that is, you know, okay, that's a good thing. I mean, people who sort of like into the traditional overnight camp experience were telling other people who shared some of their backgrounds, but then you get this primarily white demographic. Yeah. And, you know, our mission since 1903, or the motto, I should say, not the mission, the motto has been God first, the other fellow second, myself last. Mm -hmm. And I remember discussion a decade ago among the senior staff where we were agreeing you know okay God can be whatever you think it is the most important parts of the mission or the motto are the second two phrases you know the other fellow second myself last so the emphasis is on kindness on selfishness but somebody said the other fellow isn't just the other white fellow right? Uh, or the other black fellow or the other Latinx fellow. It's, it's anyone. Right. And it, and even though we're an all boys camp, it's also women. It's also gender fluid people. It, the other person is got to be not just understood to be anyone who signs up will gladly enroll them, but let's really make the tapestry at Belknap 
look like the tapestry of the world, you know, so that, I mean, if, if we were preparing kids to be good parents and good uh, professionals, good people, then we owe it to the campers and their families, who a lot of them are the ones paying the tuition, to give them an experience that is reflective of the world, you know? And so I, so I think that we do it, are doing it in a genuine way. And of course, one of the things that we're discovering is this is not something you decide to do one late November night and the next summer looks really mixed in terms of your camper group. Instead, uh, you know, it, it takes a while. And like you and I were talking about yesterday, it takes some active kind of recruitment, community outreach, and not just, even though our 501c3 status depends on our doing some community service in the state of New Hampshire, where there are people, especially in the bigger cities like Manchester, Nashua, Portsmouth, who are not white, uh, we're also interested in campers from different countries and after religious, socioeconomic, ethnic, uh, cultural, all different kinds of diversity. So anyway, again, another another long answer to your question, but I, you can tell I feel very passionately about how we're doing it, not in a, not in a tokenistic way or not in a performative way, but in a way that I, I feel proudly reflects some of the outreach and service that Belknap has done in the past, now extending into um, other areas. And, and, and I will say, I know the most about what we're doing at the camp where I'm working, but the camps we visited are doing a lot the same thing. It really does feel genuine and and that means I think it's going to be durable. You know, it's not just like, okay, now when we, if we don't do this for one year, it's all going to disappear. Um, anyway, but, I don't but know what with you're... all of the, the people who would want to go to camp who are, are you know, not white and, and they would obviously want to go, and I'm not necessarily questioning you know what you're saying about the mission particularly of, of Belknap you have a more intimate knowledge of of that camp uh, than I do and I'm sure everybody's intention is uh, from a good place I guess I just wonder like when I go in and look I'm kind of sensitive to what the numbers look like and so I guess I'm wondering like why there is not more in the way of diversity at this point if that's what because you know I guess the hardest thing to me would be that you must be trying to change years of tradition which has been the opposite of whatever this new push is like what's the difficulty then in that case of getting uh, you know even more people of color in in this experience and situation and then the other thing is I'm curious about uh, that intention and that mindset when we're talking about uh, being sort of church mission minded mm -hmm. 
where you're going to go and help these poor, you know, underprivileged kids. Even when you bring them in, you say, okay, well, we're going to share this experience uh, with them where they may not have had it as much. But I guess I'm also wondering, and, and I'm asking this question legitimately, it's not an accusation so much as a question. <clears throat> Are we doing anything as a camp or as a camp culture that also uh, calls out and speaks to their contribution as well? Because there's something sort of empowering about the two of us uh, like joining forces. But if we're joining forces in a way where you're doing me a favor, then even though I might be somewhat benefiting from it, somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm always in the lower status. Yeah. And, and that takes like a slow drip sort of hit to your self-image, who you are as a person with, and, and, and what you think your contribution to the relationship, the camp, society, the world uh, may be. So I'm wondering, are we fostering in these kids a sense of your contribution is valid? So even though I may not have those high uh, expensive uh, lacrosse sticks, uh, do I have something that contributes to the playing of lacrosse uh, or the team or am I teaching these other kids something else that they wouldn't necessarily know or be exposed to that they can take back and, and have as a positive contribution to who they become as adults and, and not just in a way that says I help the poor black kids from right. the other side of town. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, but are you actually having an, a, a sort of equal exchange? And I think that's that's the thing that in a lot of different instances, in a lot of different industries other than just the camp industry, is missing when you start talking about DEI situations and scenarios. DEI gets uh, defined as what am I going to do for the poor uh people of color, and I don't necessarily mean economically poor, I mean, oh, woe is them, right. uh, people of color, how will I bestow some blessings upon them it is another form of, it, uh, uh, or the opposite side of the coin of that privilege. You don't actually go into it thinking that you will gain something equally, like there will be an exchange. Instead, it's more like... Uh, let me give an offering at church. You yeah. Know what I'm what I'm saying? So. Yeah. I, I mean, and to be honest, I don't know. I know that's what we would want. I don't know whether that's what we're achieving yet. I don't think that there are, I mean, I can't speak for everyone else on the leadership, but I've certainly heard the directors say and other senior staff say um, very importantly First of all, these are not ever to be viewed as charity cases. And whatever you might think, let's lay this out. If you were a parent or a camper peer or on the leadership, one of the counselors, one of the cabin leaders, that like there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between the brown and black campers who are at camp and socioeconomic scale that, well, all these brown and black campers are on scholarship, 
and that's just one of the many reasons we should feel sorry for these poor black and brown kids. Um, we have black and brown kids who are from wealthy families. Okay. We have white kids who, as I said earlier, were living in their cars with one parent prior to coming to camp. So we're doing our jobs well if areas of diversity are not uh, corresponding, you know, certain areas of diversity are not corresponding with other areas of diversity. Like, you know, all of the Latinx kids are Catholic and all of the white kids are Jewish and all of the black kids are Baptist. And, you know, like that just, that's, that is a kind of diversity, but, uh, wow. Look, okay. We just had to switch there. Camera overheated, different day, new battery, new different clothes, different Don't be clothes confused. erase the SD card. Right. Uh, but again, if there are two different kinds of diversity that are not exclusively overlapping, I think it, it, it helps to reach the goal of not having any campers or students in your organization feel that they are charity cases or, or be identified as tokens, right? Because, right? I mean, you don't want that. As you were saying, you, you, you know, the idea is... Everybody is intentionally invited to be part of this group because of what they bring to the group, not because of their backgrounds, not because of their uh, socioeconomic scale. Um, I mean, you say not because of their backgrounds. Everybody's background is different. You want that rich tapestry of different backgrounds in order to, like we were saying at the beginning, mirror the Society, world. Exactly. I, it's just, like I said, I think there can be that temptation if you approach it in a way that says, uh, well, you know, we want to go and, and bring these different voices in, but we're going to uh, go and do it in a way that is, uh, let me do a favor for these underserved people, and then that's where you stop. Uh, it's not a matter of let me exchange with different, which you actually should be doing with everybody who comes to camp, not just if they're, you know, a member of a, a minority group, if you will, or or anything like that. It should be just where camp period is about that exchange, and I think sometimes we can forget that. Yeah. I think, too, you know, we were talking earlier about equipment and maybe, like, I mentioned the fancy lacrosse stick. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily want to prohibit kids from bringing athletic equipment to camp, for example. Right. And if I were your cabin leader and you want to, you know, play some pass with a cross ball um, and you want to use your stick because that's what you use at home, that's okay. If we're going to play as a group, uh, then I think we're going to all use the camp's equipment. Otherwise, I, I don't feel like it's equitable. Yeah, well, the message, you know, that sins is is uh, one of unity and and inclusiveness anyway. You know what I mean? All of us are the same. We're all using, uh, you know, the same gear. And in that way, it sort of fosters a, you know, we're all starting at the same place or, or playing from the same, you know, on the same field, if you will, uh, Anyway, so I think that kind of, like, general thinking with it helps out, you know. That's just me. I think I think you need to give them as much of that kind of thing as possible. 
the experience of all of that, you know. But also, like we were talking about yesterday in uh, our workshop, just how you can also foster a sense of, okay, I'm coming to the table with uh, this sort of skill set or these sort of privileges or whatever. I'm coming to the table with this sort of experience. And so there can be a different exchange of that too uh, that can enrich everybody as well. So I, like I said, I think that that's uh, really important. Before we wrap up, I want to uh, ask you about, because a lot of the camps, and we kind of touched on this one other time, but a lot of the camps have uh, names where they're named after, you know, indigenous tribes uh, and that sort of thing. But there's not like a high concentration of indigenous people at the at the camp. So I know we were talking about like here in Maine, there's a some sort of push to to maybe get rid of a lot of the monuments or the uh, the names and things like that. And I'm just wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that versus like say uh, maybe leaning into the name by uh, by really sort of learning and internalizing a lot of the the principles and values that would be sort of the good principles and values we want to teach campers like integrity, honor, that kind of thing. There's a sense of that and pride and all of that in uh, a lot of these tribes and, and these nations. How can we take some of the values that they have and then have the campers leave with not only that heightened sense of these great values, but also a real understanding of a people that they may not have even thought about or you know understood before, wouldn't have been even on their radar. Now they understand, uh, you know, a whole different people, which can principally foster them learning about different people, period, you know, and increasing their cultural IQ in that way, as opposed to just either we're going to trivialize it or we're going to wipe it out, you know. There's a third option is what I'm saying. I'm asking what you think about that. Well, I, I mean, I like the way that you put it and with an emphasis on understanding other people. I mean, that's what like, you and I are going all around the country to schools and camps trying to inspire young people to embrace that practice right. and I don't know a more powerful way to reduce or maybe eliminate prejudice whether we're talking about racism or sexism or homophobia than getting to know other people uh, I, I really feel like so much of prejudice is I mean, historically, race being established as a social construct to intentionally subjugate other people so that you could enslave them or otherwise abuse and take advantage of them, um, you know, is horrible. And the inverse of that is endowing, as you talk so much about in our workshops, affording everyone high and equal status, right? So I, I would start from that place and say, you know, as a white person with a lot of privilege in this country, and of course that I was born into by virtue of my skin color, 
and being middle class, upper middle class at birth, um, my first go-to resource would be some indigenous people. And I don't think I fully appreciated that until I went to Australia in 2015 and and had an opportunity to speak with a lot of indigenous people, some who were in government, local and national, some who were professional educators, some who were entertainers. And I really, I really internalized, I think, for the first time, the importance of answering questions like you're answering. What do we do about the indigenous symbols? What do we do about the indigenous names? And rather than having a bunch of white people or white and black people sitting around going, oh, what do we do about this? You've got to invite indigenous people into the conversation. Absolutely. So whatever the state it is, Maine, New Hampshire, anywhere else, um, I hope that indigenous people are being invited to be part of that conversation, lest we err on the side of either trivializing it or, as you were saying, dismissing it altogether. And I would think that leaning into it that I'm talking about would inherently require you to have the involvement of, you know what I mean, indigenous people because, of, you know, what you're going to know about it or try to learn really quick with a Wikipedia search right. is going to be, you know, very anemic uh, when it comes to actually giving some, you know, like potent exposure to young people to a different culture. So you would you would have to have the involvement of those people who would really know what that is about, really be able to explain it, embody it, and model it in front of the young people. And in addition to that, it would bring in more indigenous, you know, campers even to interact with. You. So you get the, the campers would get a 360-degree sort of immersion, exposure, what have you, into, right. into you know, the culture that that camp is named after. I just think that makes a lot of sense. But I'm wondering, my, my follow-up question then, and obviously you're not, you know, uh, in the in government in that way, but I'm just wondering what, what your perspective or thoughts are on you know, why there would be like I don't know why they're either blind to that or purposely saying no, we won't even try to pursue this particular option. You know, I mean that's that's a good question. I can only speculate, and I think that uh, saying, for example. We're going to get rid of indigenous names for rivers or uh, mountains or things like that. It's because it seems like the the easy way out, you know, like, oh, this is a touchy subject. And I think if you do that without having a conversation or a series of conversations with the people who are directly affected, then you're just playing into this sort of cancel culture or it's performative and you're making yourself feel better, but you're not making anyone else feel better. Right. I think if, if a name is derogatory, like Washington Redskins, right. I, I don't think that Redskins is something, and again, I'm, I'm making an assumption, but 
it's based on the conversations I've had with indigenous people in Canada and in the U.S. They don't want to be called redskins. Right. That's a white invention. It has derogatory connotations. We're creative. We can think of a new name. Absolutely. Okay. If it's not derogatory, you know, so here in Maine we have, for example, uh, you know, the Passamaquoddy River. In New Hampshire, there's Lake Winnipesaukee. These are indigenous names, just as I discovered many of the names are in Australia. And the indigenous people that I've spoken with in three countries, I guess, all feel honored to have rivers, mountains, or for that matter, a sports team named after them under one condition, mm -hmm. at least one condition, and that is that people who are using that name understand what it is that they're saying. Right. Right. So I've referred to the camp where I have worked for so many years in central New Hampshire, and we have an intramural sports program that involves all of the campers in a in a series of really wonderful non-traditional games, and it's healthy competition in my view. But they are, you know, the Saco Celtics, the Samoset Sox, the Pogus Patriots, the Abenaki Bruins. Now, part of those names are all New England sports teams, right? Like Bruins and Sox and uh, so forth. But the other part of the name refers to indigenous tribes or people. So Saco, Pogus, Samoset, Abenaki. And when we invited a Native American educator to spend a day at camp, again, she said, I don't speak for all Native American or indigenous people, but I will tell you that as far as I know, I and the people who are close to me who are indigenous would not take offense to, let's say, the Saco Celtics if the players on that team knew something about right. Saco and what is that and is it a tribe or is it a person and what can we tell you about that tribe and where were they and if it was a person why are they of significance Absolutely. in the same way that you know if it's the Saco Celtics let's not assume everybody is a basketball fan let's tell them okay you know the Boston Celtics are a basketball team a lot of people in New England are fans they play in Boston etc etc um and so it's, it is, as you said, it is about understanding. And I would respect the fact that camps and schools and sports teams will ultimately make their own decisions about, are we going to keep this? Are we going to not going to keep it? But my broad advice based on the conversations I've had with indigenous people is, if it's not derogatory, if it is an actual respectful name, mm -hmm. the way you to use your word, honor that, is to be informed, to understand, to know. And the ultimate goal would be to have some kids from, you know, the Abenaki tribe be part of our community in some way. And then it's not just, okay, we know about the Abenaki tribe. We know Abenaki people. Right. And that, I think, should make folks feel even more confident about 
uh, adopting a name, for example. As far as the other, I'll just say this one thing and let sure. you respond. As far as the uh, symbols, I think that's touchier because your method, I would suggest, should still be the same. Talk to indigenous people, ask them about it. One of the things that we learned, you know, in, in our camp history, having for our weekly firelight, some of the senior staff wear uh, Native American headdresses. And I should point out, those were Native American headdresses or indigenous headdresses that were created by indigenous people, blessed by indigenous people. And for a while we felt like, well, that's enough. You know, it's, it is their product. We purchased it. It was for sale, but it's not enough. What we learned was that, first of all, not all tribes wore headdresses as part of any kind of ceremonial garb. Second of all, it's really only the tribal elders that would wear a headdress, each of the feathers representing some accomplishment or honor that they had received, and only for certain ceremonies. So number one, I or anyone else who's wearing a headdress has not earned those feathers, so that's a non-starter right there. Second, if we are if we don't understand, if we are ignorant about the purpose of that symbol, in this case, a headdress, we don't have any business wearing it. And we certainly wouldn't want to make people feel uncomfortable if they came to visit us. In the same way that uh, if you were Catholic and I dressed up as a priest for your Halloween party, which, by the way, is a secular holiday very few people know anything about, or pagan holiday, if you want to put it that way. Um, but, you know, we, and as a footnote, we get all squirmy about, well, I don't know if we should have Hanukkah, Christmas, or Kwanzaa decorations up in the hallways of, you know, our public schools, our independent schools. But everybody's fine with ghosts and goblins and other sort of Halloween stuff without having any understanding at all about the origins of Halloween. And I'm not saying you should have it or not have it. I'm agreeing with you. You got, you got to understand it. So as soon as we understood about headdresses, we stopped wearing them. If I were dressed up as a priest with a, you know, with a clerical collar and uh, mimicked giving out communion at this Halloween party, that could be deeply offensive to you if you're Catholic and observant. And maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. But why do that? There's so many other costumes that I could wear that. I don't think would offend people. There was last Halloween party I went to. I was static cling. I had a I had a black turtleneck and black pants on and 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 socks and underwear like <laughs> bobby pinned to my shirt. I was static cling. This is the Jeez. portion of our show called TMI. I just want to say, you know, <laughs> only thing I was appropriating was my own sloppiness. Right, so. right, right. No, but no, it's it it it's it's understanding. No, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. And even with regard to the symbols, the problem, or the parallel, I'll say, they always see what the problem of, like, the headdress and what have you, is like uh, stolen valor for military people. So it's like if you show up to a military ceremony and you have never served uh, and you're wearing the uniform, dress uniform, and you have medals on that people have, you know... Uh, certain 
died, bled, earned for by getting wounded or heroic acts or what have you, and you got all those medals all the way down from your chest to your knee because you think it looks cute on this uh, uniform. People who served in the military really understand what that's about on a on a very personal level. Be very very upset about that. Yeah. And in that way. Uh, it's the same thing when you start talking about what's earned, what's not earned, what you understand, what you don't understand uh, about it at all. And I think if you are trying to embrace and internalize some of those values that, that those people would be talking about and, and showing the young people how those values can contribute to their lives and, and to what they bring to society, I, I just think that it may it would make more sense if people would have less of a problem with it wearing or with any of it. I think the, the bigger, like you said, problem is just that you're doing it out of ignorance and with a lack of understanding and you're doing it in that way, whether you intend to or not, in a mocking fashion, which is is then, you know, that should be stopped. <clears throat> but I think we end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying well, since that's like this, then all of that should be stopped naturally. Like you said, the best course of action is to see what indigenous people think about it. But in my view, I think if I think a lot of people are open to a cultural exchange. A lot of people are open to you, wherever your background, wherever you come from, whatever your background, you're open to people understanding you and you understanding them and then dealing with each other from that shared understanding as opposed to, I don't want to know anything about you. You're supposed to assimilate into my culture, but whenever I get ready, I'll pick certain things out about your culture that I think is cute or fun to do, and I'll, you know, dress like that or try right. to, you know, look like that. I think, I think people are more upset about the insult of that paradigm than they are about actually sharing any information. And I think that's that's the part that. I would like to see different about camps, schools, jobs, you know, just in this society, period. Instead of all of this fighting and lines being drawn in the sand, what, how can we understand one another? How can we really get to, to know you and you know me so that some of these conversations are easier, so that uh, our, our daily communion with each other is more rich and you know gives us better solutions to to problems in society and everything we just but we have to actively do that and so that that would be my my closing thought for today's show I, no, I think that's great and you know I love the way you put it just actively I I think for so much of my life I was the passive recipient mm -hmm. of interesting information but that passivity is not terribly effective you'll learn some things right. some people will cross your path but you put yourself at a terrible disadvantage and are at much greater risk for all different kinds of bias if you think passively letting the world go by you will expose you to enough different ideas and people to eliminate some of those biases. Right. Just, 
you know, you've got to reach out. Absolutely. I completely agree. All right. That was cool. Well, we look forward to seeing everybody on the next podcast or having everybody listen to the next podcast, seeing us on the next video version. And if you've got an idea for a topic or a guest you'd like us to feature on I'm Black, You're White, Now What? Get in touch with us. We've got links and information below and we look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristherber.com.